Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. Half an hour on your radio where we talk about all things science-y. My name's Stu and this week I'm actually going to be talking about the coolest space craft program project that you've probably never heard of, the Orion Project. See, you haven't heard of it. You're looking I at have me not blankly. heard. I, I look. I mean, Chris is nodding, but I am shaking my head. Yeah. Well, the Orion the Orion project was cancelled many, many, many years ago. For many moons ago. For even? well, many moons ago, but they were thinking well beyond the moon. They were thinking of interplanetary travel. But you'll see why they cancelled it pretty quickly when I start talking about it later mm. in the show. So maybe it's not so cool after all. Steve. Chris, what have you got for us? Well, I um, continuing on from a story that I did a couple of weeks ago now, I think, if you listen to it, uh, I talked about potatoes. And potatoes. Potatoes. And I said I was going to do a bit of a series on... on potatoes. Effect. No, on, on <laughs> things like dietary stuff and medical research, the kind of things that make the news and how you make sense of what you believe when you hear about science reports and what you should eat and whether things are bad for you or not. And yeah. as part of that, I feel I should actually give a little bit of a mention of what it means when scientists say something is statistically significant. Um, it has a very specific meaning. has a specific meaning and it has, yeah, it kind of, yes, it's quite complex. And I will be speaking to a special guest on the program this week, actually about um, about how climate change is going to be affecting our domestic animals. So if you think about your cats, your dogs, um, guinea, and pigs. Then guinea pigs, <laughs> and then also like stock animals, climate change and how it's going to affect our animals and what we should be looking out for. Well, what an action-packed show. Stay tuned. <laughs> The history of space travel is full of incredible sounding projects that never actually got off the ground, so to speak. Mm. Uh, And when I was a kid, there were still plenty of books floating around libraries showing various versions of them. Um, And the idea of humans traveling to other planets and setting up colonies was pretty much accepted in the mid 20th century as the inevitable next step of human civilization. We were also living in bubbles on the moon by now, I believe. Well, that's right. Those, those, the books that I'm thinking of are full of pictures of moon bases and even further flung colonies of humans, usually based on uh, various incarnations of 1950s and 60s technology. Oh, yeah. Dogs in spacesuits. Yeah. With bubble, bubble helmets yeah. around Jetsons. their heads. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I recently came across a project many people may not have heard of. Uh, from the United States, dating from the late 1950s, called the Orion Project. Now, the project was considered as a potential means of putting people on other planets, but not just within our solar system, actually making interstellar travel a possibility. Um, So the Orion Project was based on the potential for using atomic energy, as lots of things were in the 50s. The atomic, you know, the the power of the atom was was the greatest invention known to humankind, um, to power giant ships to carry people to Mars or the moons of Saturn, or even to our nearest neighboring stars. So it was not a very sophisticated system. I mean, in some ways it was, but admittedly, 
uh, the basic premise was that a ship would sit on top of a stack of atomic bombs. <laughs> and as each one exploded in sequence, the ship accelerated. <laughs> right. Well, look, you know, this this seemed like a, a pretty good way to, to get huge distances um, back in the back in the late 50s. Um, and the famous physicist Freeman Dyson proposed that such a ship could potentially reach Alpha Centauri in as little as 133 years. Venture of the vacuum cleaner. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> different, 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 different Dyson. Dyson yeah. um, obviously, this is still far too long for any crew to last the journey. And so the, ge- the idea of generation ships was developed where a crew would live and raise families on the ship and their grandchildren or great-grandchildren would eventually be the ones to arrive at their destination. That's quite a commitment, really. It is quite a commitment, especially for the people who don't get to commit to it themselves, who are born on the ship yeah, and have yeah. no choice. And might decide to just turn it around. Well, potentially. So the proposed ships were gigantic. The largest one that they proposed would have weighed over 8 million tonnes and would have been effectively a giant space city. Um, now, the major drawback, which should be pretty obvious having a ship that's powered by nuclear explosions at its base. Uh, and it's the reason that these ships were never built was that the nuclear explosions would leave behind them a trail of radioactive fallout. So you would have to launch them from relatively far off in space to avoid spraying the <laughs> earth with atomic fallout on like, your way out. I guess you could put Crop it into a higher orbit. Or like, not higher orbit, like you go to actually, say, do the Martian orbit or something like that. Or, or, or you could you could potentially leave from the far side of the moon or something like yeah, that, I guess. Yeah. It probably there, there was probably ways around it, but people sort of yeah. freaked out a little bit at the very concept. Well, I, so think, the, um, I think it also became technically illegal when they, they had um, bans on actually testing in space. There was like international... Yeah, that's right. Signed. Yeah. The... Um, the 1963 Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty effectively shut down the program mm. and uh, President Kennedy himself sort of went, oh, well, if we're saying we can't let off explosions in space, we can't really power a ship with uh, explosions. Um, but the idea of using external nuclear devices is still considered viable, but most current plans revolve around the use of very small fission pellets or tiny little bombs mm or various fusion-based propulsion systems, both of which are basically beyond our current technology. So, is Project Daedalus one of those? Daedalus is, yeah. yeah, one of the ones that is sort of went well into the 70s, I think. Okay. Um, but again, the, the technology yeah. never quite made it up there yeah. to uh, to make it viable. And there are, um, there are sort of quasi-nuclear-powered spacecraft out there. They, I think they mostly just use radioactive um, material to like, generate electricity you might have seen one in um the movie the martian i think um matt damon goes and finds an old plutonium sort of power source that he uses to heat he his, his moon rover yeah T- to hey, heat his greenhouse rover. where are he was growing potatoes that's a <laughs> potatoes are you saying that's a reality no no they're, yeah there are they're, they're actual, are, yeah. There are nuclear powered space vehicles but they're not like a bomb or a reactor or something like that they're no. actually just generally a bit of radioactive material yeah the the orion really? the orion yeah. thing was all about using the actual physical blast for acceleration, yeah. whereas these ones are getting power from decay of radioactive elements. Right, yeah. okay, okay. Um, but what I found interesting was that the original Orion concepts were based on existing and tested technology um, all the way back in the early 1960s. And they could have actually worked, theoretically. They could have actually 
been able to do this. And by now they'd be into what the how many generations? The second generation at least. Well, they'd be yeah, they'd be well into the you know they'd be halfway through their journey just about. Right. Um, if they sent someone off to uh, to Alpha Centauri, think um, all the things they would have missed. Internet. They might have developed their own. Mm. You'd, Game you'd, of you'd want to send some. Yeah. You'd want to send some pretty smart people Pokemon. to do a to do a century long mission. I would yeah, think. yeah. Um, but look, Carl Sagan even went so far as to suggest that he couldn't think of a better way to use all of the existing nuclear devices uh, already built than to send craft into deep space. He just thought, "What else are we going to do with these nuclear weapons? We That's might as well. Call. We might as well use them space, for something yeah. useful." Um, I guess you know. I think that I kind of think back to my childhood and the pictures in those old books and at the time when they made these books they probably seemed like a lot more achievable because people were aware of these kind of projects going on and probably thought just around the corner we'll be all piling into a spaceship to head off to uh alpha centauri or mars or you know the moons of jupiter or something like that um so even though we're actually no closer in practical terms to being able to travel to other habitable planets it is kind of cool to know that if someone really wanted to, they could potentially at least get their genes to another planet. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. When someone says something is significant, what does it mean to you? It means well, a lot. Yeah, and, and, and it totally depends on the... Context. context. Well, you often hear a lot of it in um, in scientific news articles. Like you see it here, it's something in the news. Say scientists have got a found a significant, or something increases your risk significantly, or there is a significant effect from this this particular treatment. And it can be a little confusing um, what it actually means. Um, I went to, uh, like any good kind of story, I went to the dictionary and looked up. What's significant means? <laughs> the Oxford Dictionary actually, defines <laughs> pretty much. Um, the Oxford Dictionary, as, as you say, uh, it says it is an adjective. Um, its first definition it gives is um, these sufficiently great or important to be worthy of attention or, or noteworthy, which I think is what most people think of significant meaning. It's something it's important, it's noteworthy. Although um, their second meaning there was basically just it means that it has a particular meaning and they give an example of suggesting a meaning or message that's not explicitly stated, as in she gave him a significant look. Nice, significant look, Chris. Yeah, thanks. Um, but now, we're, most people will think of significant means it's important because that's yep. kind of what significant means in the everyday parlance. Yeah. But in science, when we say... Science so, parlance. Science parlance, it, means it basically means that it is a result that's considered that it's likely to be true. Yeah, or, and important as well. I mean, it's the same... Well, it's not necessarily depending what you mean by important. Mm. It really means that it's likely to be true. So what it means is that uh, this thing called the p-value, which is a technically thing. Um, <laughs> the p-value is... just a probability. The p-value yeah, is, yeah, yeah, is a probability of basically of getting the result you got um, where if the null hypothesis is true. So if, if I say you've got a hypothesis, you're testing a hypothesis, and the probability of getting the results that you got if your hypothesis was, was false, um, that is kind of the p-value. And so if that p-value is less than some predetermined level that you've agreed that it's going to be, um, so the probability of it being, essentially probably being false is less than a certain level, then you say this is a significant result. It's usually set at, what, 0.05 is... 
well, a general rule? That's what a lot of um, yeah medical research and a lot of um, research uses. So to give an example, way it's often used, yeah, it's a 0.05. And so the way it's often expressed, they don't normally give the actual probability as such. They'll give you, say, yeah, um, the 95% chance it's in a certain range. So last week, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the, the um, study that said potatoes will give you high blood pressure. And they said that there was an effect of an 11% increase. Um, so a 1.11 was the, the amount that it was sort of the multiplier of eating potatoes to give you high blood pressure. But they said it was 95% confidence interval of between 0.96 and 1.28. Okay, so that's their kind of, their statistical significance level is between those two numbers, 0.96 and 1.28. And my argument that I went off about potatoes in that story was that that, that range overlaps the number one, which basically is a null result. So this result actually wasn't statistically significant because it kind of, yeah, had the null hypothesis was completely compatible with this particular 95% confidence so you, interval. you could have actually got the results from that just from random chance. Yeah, yeah. Now, in that one, they where it gets into, though, significance, I'll come back to what that actually means as well, though, but the other side of things, whether it's important or not, this is where it starts to get a bit more complicated. So when I said there was an 11%, that 1.11 figure, that was the hazard ratio. So it basically, the ratio of the, the hazard, hazard ratio? the hazard ratio, also known as the relative risk ratio okay. um, of potatoes will increase your risk of high blood pressure by 11%, by multiply the risk by 1.11, okay? Um, now, that doesn't necessarily equate to a big result, depending on what is what we're talking about here. Um, so people often look at something called absolute risk as well, which is the amount that it actually will affect you. So to give an example, um, you might have heard last year there was a whole kind of foo-for-all about whether processed meat gives you cancer. Eating yeah. processed meat gives you cancer. It was declared as... Headlines such as, bacon causes cancer, stop eating it, were bandied around. Essentially, yeah. Lot. yeah. Now, this was released by the IARC, which is the International Association for Cancer Research, or something like that, but it's in French, which is why the letters are backwards. <laughs> um, and what they... One of the things they determined was that the, the risk, the relative risk is an 18% increase in risk of getting bowel cancer for eating 50 grams of processed meat every day. Um, so 18% increase sounds like a lot. Okay, so that's, yeah. the, that's the relative risk ratio. Um, however, bowel cancer is not, um, is, it is the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in Australia, but it is still not that common. It's about an 8% chance of being diagnosed with bowel cancer by the time you're age 85. Yeah. So um, about 7.9%, shall we say. Um, so when you actually look at what that 8% equates to, it's increasing your risk from 7.9% to 9.3%. So the absolute risk then people would give this is 1.4%. Suddenly doesn't sound as, as big a deal as 18%, does it? So, and this is the kind of thing that people need to consider when they look at these things is, you know, what is the absolute risk of it? Is it worth the actual intervention? In this case, it's up to the individual to decide whether that 1.4% increase is worth giving up bacon for. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, if you, if you had a family history of bowel cancer or something mm. like that, then yeah. you might consider that to be significant enough to... Absolutely. To, to, to you cut out the significant, bacon. didn't you? Out, yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I slipped into it. But it does give you an idea of the difference between important and significant. Because sometimes you'll have a result that is significant in a statistical sense, but is not necessarily important um, in the, what it means for health or that sort of thing. 
But there is another aspect to it as well. <laughs> so, as we said, um, we get back into what this actually means or this definition of statistical significance, which is this 95% sort of probability, effectively. So, that sounds pretty good, 95%. That sounds... Sounds pretty good, good chance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that means that there's a 5% chance of it being outside that, or basically a 1 in 20 that is outside that range, that 95% range. Now, let's give, take an example, which an example which I got from Wikipedia. I won't claim this is my own. But supposing you roll a pair of dice and it comes up with double six. Mm-hmm. Okay, now there is a 1 in 36 chance of you getting a double six when you roll a pair of dice. So that is below our 1 in 20, our 5% sort of outside a range for our confidence interval. So just saying this for this 95% confidence, we would say, oh, those dice are clearly fixed because they kind of double six. But, you know, you can get double six when you roll a pair of dice. Doesn't mean they're loaded. Um, so you kind of need to look on just the pure kind of statistics in this. To look at the, the value of one of these studies, you have to look at things like the, the size of the study, how many, how much data there actually was, and uh, to, get, to get a good idea of whether you can actually believe this yeah. Statistical how many times are you rolling the dice? Exactly. But I could give that result and say it is 95% confident that these dice are loaded. Um, but I've only rolled them once. Um, so, yeah, the context of Dodgy it, the size Chris. of the experiment um, has an impact as well. Now, call me dodgy. I am a physicist, as you know. Dodgy. And physicists, <laughs> we, we go a bit further than that. We use a... Um, a sort of a level called five sigma, which is five standard deviations, which basically is a one in 3.5 million chance of it being right, being wrong. You, you discover yeah, being wrong. That's... This is what they use for things like the Higgs wow. boson and gravitational waves. Now, one in 3.5 million, that's pretty good. It's not quite as, as you know, long the, as the odds of winning Tats Lotto, but it's still, um, you know, it's still what we use as physicists. Unfortunately, that's because we're doing things like big particle accelerator experiments. We're sending like millions of particles around around a tube. Um, medical research obviously has a few more restrictions. Um, you haven't got as many patients as the millions of particles. Uh, it, you know, the effects um, aren't necessarily as clear cut as you said. There are often a lot of confounders. There are people's genetic profile. There's a lot of other things caused. There's not usually one single thing that causes any, any one particular disease. Also, also ethical considerations because you can't have a control group where you don't help them at all. Yeah. Well, those kind of things, yeah. And you can't put them in a in a accelerator in Switzerland. You can't put your patients no, in that no. and zip them around. As much as you physicists want to. No, we, we try to. Look, the takeaway is basically that when a science report gives says the result is significant, that doesn't necessarily mean it's important. It just means that it's statistically likely. And even then, it might not even be true. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Climate change affect the health and welfare of our most beloved pets. This is a topic we don't talk about much, but in Adelaide last month, the Australian Veterinarian Association came together for their annual conference, and a main focus of the event was just this. I have with me today Dr Guy Wirasinger from the Australian Veterinarians in Public Health, who was one of the organisers of the workshop. Welcome to Lost in Science, Guy. G'day, how are we going? Very well. So, Guy, can you let us know what are the main sort of health and welfare issues that will be facing our pets as the climate changes? Okay, so in terms of climate change's impact on pets, I have to always preface this is that 
we don't have any systems really that are currently good at capturing this data. But right. there are people who are working on uh, better surveillance systems in small animal veterinary practice. But what I can talk about is that we know that pets are impacted by storms. There's a lot of cats and dogs that have got a lot of storm phobia. Absolutely. Climate change intensifies the um, storms. So we are now passing on the message to a lot of our, you know, all pet owners in Australia how to look after their pets during intense storms. And what sort of um, messages are you trying to get out there? Uh, I guess the big things for me are to make sure that the pet, every pet is microchipped, that every client knows what to look for in terms of, in terms of identifying storm phobia because as a pet gets older, the storm phobia behaviour actually intensifies and just gets more and more, I guess, outward. I, I, I had this one situation where a golden retriever, really old golden retriever, had such bad storm phobia, pretty much barreled through a fence and uh, ripped its two uh, canines on its lower jaw out. And I had to, like, oh luckily goodness. these clients were really lovely, brought the dog straight away, and I was able to at least surgically repair that, pull the teeth out, but had to surgically repair that jaw. I guess that's an example, like a horrible example, but it's an example of just how scary storms are for pets. And so the early signs I tell people to watch out for are, like, really dilated pupils, licking the lips, pacing, trying to hide under things. Those are some of the very early signs that you can spot out early. And I recommend that people should be going and speaking to their veterinarians and coming up with a plan for what to do when a storm is about to hit. It's better that way rather than the alternative where after the storm has occurred, you've already seen the damage that's occurred to your your pet. I mean, this is something that needs uh, talking about with the wider community, but also the wider veterinarian community. And that's something you have been doing at a workshop in Adelaide recently. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Uh, We recently held a... Uh, our One Health and the Impact of Climate Change workshop. So One Health is that interface between human health, animal health and environmental health. And we sort of operate in that intersection of all things One Health. And so we had a few experts come down, like Professor Mark Howden, who is part of the Climate Change Institute at ANU. We had uh, Dr Peter Heyman, who's from the South Australian Research and Development Institute. We had uh, Associate Professor Craig Williams, who is uh, who does a lot of work with uh, diseases that are transmitted by vectors uh, like mosquitoes. And we had Professor Colin Butler, who's like who's a medico, who is part of the Centre for Research and Action in Public Health uh, from the University of Canberra. And they all just came and pretty much laid out the situation of how climate change is impacting health in terms of human health as well as agricultural health and vector-borne diseases. And that, how did that workshop come about? So this, this workshop, uh, it's, it sort of came about because we... So I used to be the president of the Public Health Special Interest Group in, under the Australian Veterinary Association, and we were talking a lot about climate change, and we were saying... This is a public health issue. This is an issue for animal health and animal welfare. So let's start working on a position statement. Let's start having more conversations about that. And we decided, look, you know what, let's, let's start getting, bring some of these experts together and provide us at least what the facts are in the situation. So a lot of our vets can be sort of have that kind of knowledge in the back of their head and they can start thinking about research ideas. I'm a bit of a research nerd, so for me, I want more research occurring. And you mentioned about a statement. So are you putting um, these findings together into a statement that's going to be 
released publicly or...? That is the hope. Now, I, I can't go into great depth about what the position statement is going to entail because it's still in draft mode. But the, big, understand, yes. the big punchy bits that we like talking about is just saying we, you know, climate change is happening. We're not going to get into the debate about it because that's just encouraging the denialists. But to talk about what, where we consider climate change is going to be a, uh, a risk factor to, to animal health, welfare and production. So things like vector-borne diseases, you, there's a lot of diseases that happen in animals that are transmitted by biting midges or mosquitoes. And climate change is something which we know which will, I guess, be a factor in moving these populations around. Like we've seen in Canada, new diseases coming in with the movement of different reindeers and tick species moving up further north. So we're worried about what, well, how's that going to impact on Australian animal health and welfare? Other areas of uh, concern for us from a veterinary perspective are things like food security and safety. So are we able to sustain the level of agricultural production with climate change in play? Or do we need to start thinking about different methods of adapting so we're sort of raising that as a subject that is critical in the agricultural world. Things like ecosystems health. Did you, uh, did you guys ever discuss the paper that came out last year by Urban from Science, I think, uh, about species extinction due to climate change? I can't remember us specifically speaking about that, that paper. So maybe um, briefly update us, yeah. So it was a paper, that was a really nice paper. It was like a meta-analysis which combined quite a few papers together and identified what, are, what areas are going to be at most risk due to climate change. And Urban had pointed out that we're going to be seeing a lot of, uh, we're going to be seeing species extinction in very uh, climate niche areas, in particular South America and Australia. Right, that's a huge finding. <laughs> yes. So uh, being an epidemiology nerd, I quite like reading these kinds of papers because it's all nice to sort of focus on just a single paper and just go, yep, that's a real main finding. But when you sort of bring it all together, it paints a much nicer, or in this case, a scarier picture and sort of, for me, it provides me the drive for saying this is a critical issue that we need to be talking about. What advice, Guy, um, can you give to pet owners in the community at, at this point in time about how they can help their, their pets or their livestock or, um, or even wildlife? I guess my main piece of advice would be if you are having a pet that is more prone to heat stress or stone phobia or is at risk due to flooding, go and have a chat to your veterinarian. Mm -hmm. uh, plan, like, plan things way in advance. Like, I always tell a lot of my clients who have dogs that have got storm phobia, the Bureau of Meteorology is your friend. Be on that website all the time. Know when your storms are coming and then plan ahead. When it comes to heat stress situations with pets, know how to treat your pet very early and then rush them into the clinic when you feel like they are having or when you suspect they might be having heat stress. In terms of droughts or flooding in, in farming, well, you have to, a lot of farmers, a lot of my farmers have been very much, you know, following the Bureau and they, they know their weather better than I do. And they'll always plan for where they're going to move their cattle in times of flooding so that there are mounds where they can move up onto so that they're not going to be at risk of drowning. I've got farmers who are dairy farmers who will now install sprinkler systems so when the cattle come in for getting uh, milked, 
that they'll be covered in water so that they're going to be cooling down a lot mm. more. They'll also be changing. So a lot of farmers are now changing where they're going to be uh, when they are milking their cows. So it's going to be earlier in the day and later in the evening. So it's you know less risk of heat stressing those cows. And how about wildlife from a wildlife perspective? Oh, wildlife, that's, that's a huge area. I mean, yeah. <laughs> bats are so heat sensitive. Mm. Uh, I know that one of your presenters really loves a bat. Manisha, she, she's doing a PhD on them. She loves them that much. <laughs> So, I, you know, we, we know that bats are really at risk. And, you know, we're, we're even, like, there was a paper that came out in May this year on, in Science about how red knot birds, so these are birds that are up in the Arctic, due to climate change, they're actually getting smaller in size and shorter bills. We know that wildlife are going to be impacted. So I guess what do we do? <sighs> you know, where do we start? Uh, have a, you know, follow the papers, have a chat with the ecologist. Everyone should be aware of just how, how at risk a lot of these species are. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Guy, and thanks for giving us some really sort of tangible advice for things to be aware of and how we can help our pets and um, our livestock and, and wildlife about um, the impacts of climate change. Yeah, no worries. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.